Hello, and welcome back to the Building Stewards Podcast. I'm your host, Donovan Brooks, and I'm here to guide you on your stewardship journey. So today, I wanted to be a little vulnerable. Vulnerable is super important to me, and I value it quite a bit. I think it is one of the the key tenets of fostering spiritual growth on our walk towards just transformation, more towards more towards Christ. So I think the more that we as Christians can be vulnerable, I think the better off we're going to be, and we're just going to be a brighter light for the world to see. So bringing it back to what I wanted to talk today about is the three biggest mistakes that me and my wife Amy have made since being married. So we are getting ready to celebrate eight years being married, which is crazy how much time has flown by. Um, I am super blessed. She is truly the better half <laughs> of me. I, I take a, a lot of what she does for granted and who she is. She is a, such a blessing. And hopefully if you're listening, you've gotten to know her. But but yeah, since we've been married, we've made a handful of financial mistakes. And you may be thinking, what? A financial planner, certified financial planner, kingdom advisor, just a guy that's hosting a podcast and writes about being a good steward. Like he's made financial mistakes. And I'm here to humbly say, yes, I have made mistakes. And most experts in their field have made mistakes, you know, at some point in, in their lives. But I wanted to share the mistakes that we've made just hopefully so you can get some value out of that, maybe that you can learn and maybe hopefully avoid some of the things that we went through. I know I'm the first to really try to learn as much from other people as I can, and especially their mistakes. Hopefully I don't have to go through those same mistakes. But I know for each of us, we are going to make our own mistakes, whatever that is. But yeah, just wanted to offer up some of our financial mistakes um, and make those known so you can maybe hopefully learn and, and be educated and maybe hopefully prevent some of those mistakes in your life. So, okay, I'm just going to head down the list. Our first mistake, and these are in no specific order. These are just the order that I had them down on my paper. So buying a newer car. So if you follow some of the written content I create, I just created a piece about not buying newer cars and how much of a mistake that is. So we, just to give you a little backdrop of this story, we got married back in 2012, October 6th of 2012. So actually our anniversary is tomorrow. But we got married back in 2012 and we were leading Young Life and we did a lot of commuting back and forth, but we were heading home one night from club and we hit a deer. And it totaled the vehicle that we had, which is a pretty newer vehicle. So we hit a deer and it got totaled. And we had this huge check, you know, from the insurance company, a claim to pay us out for the totaled car. So we had this huge check. We'd never been in this, you know, situation before. But we we drove a rental for, you know, probably three or four weeks while they were doing all the assessment and figuring out how much it was going to cost and all the things. But come the end of the year, we decided, you know, we were down in Kansas City. We decided to drop by a couple lots and check out some cars and see if there was anything that caught our eye. And we did find something, a Toyota Corolla 2012. In my mind, oh, it's a year old. They'll be trying to move some inventory. Maybe we'll be able to get it discounted. So we found this car. We were working with this this salesperson, and he was pretty new. He was pretty giddy and looking back on it, but... He was, you know, definitely trying to push this car, and we ended up buying that car, and we spent about $16,000 on it, which thankfully that check covered, you know, all of it, so we didn't have to finance any of it. But looking back, there was a couple things that stood out. 
One, much of a car's depreciation is done in the first five years of its life. And so when I say depreciation, depreciation is this fancy word. It's an expense from the wear and tear on the car. And it has a high correlation to the mileage and how much you're using the car and everything that it's been through. So not a lot of value had been depreciated from this car when we decided to buy it. So therefore, the big expense that we bore was most of the car's depreciation and losing a lot of that value. So there are some things that you can do to prevent that. Luckily, it was a Toyota. Toyotas have a very reliable track record. They're in high demand, so they tend to keep their value. They tend to hold their value better than a lot of other brands of vehicles. So that's one thing that you can do if you're ever looking for cars. Buy reliable vehicles that have strong track records, high credibility, and you can tend to avoid you know, some of the depreciation that other cars may not be able to avoid. So, but looking back, I think we're in the camp now of you know, looking at at least five years old, um, a vehicle five years old to avoid a lot of that depreciation. And depreciation is really this hidden expense. You really don't pay for it out of pocket. It's not something that shows up as a bill. It's really this slow expense that happens over time. You know, if you check the value of your car each year and you see that it goes down, that's why it's because it's depreciating because the wear and tear, the mileage, maybe there's cosmetic or other damages done to it. It's not getting any younger, right? There's newer models and vehicles coming out that have better and more features and your car tends to become less valuable. There's less demand for it. Not that there's no demand, but there's just a flooded market of cars, right? Everyone has their own vehicle nowadays. One of the things that we should have done instead was use one of the new generation dealerships like CarMax or Carvana. And this would have allowed for a better car buying experience, but also a car buying experience that was more in our control instead of leaving it up to having someone on the other side of the table that was directly negotiating against us. In the traditional car dealership model, it's a zero-sum game. And so the negotiation, um, if you're negotiating for a benefit on your end, it directly comes at a loss to the counterparty. So using one of those new generation dealerships, it's typically pretty flat fee. All the fees are laid out and what you see is what you get. And so that was probably something that we should have done. These new generation car dealerships are very informative. You can find just about anything you need online and everything is spelled out in a pretty transparent manner. So that is something that we would probably do in the future. One thing I'll also say is if you've built any significant wealth, if you have a high net worth or your ultra high net worth, this talk about buying newer cars probably doesn't relate in the same manner to you because you've built such significant wealth having a depreciating car won't impact you in the same way as it may for others especially those that are still accumulating and still building their net worth and so that's just a little plug that i wanted to say on that again it's all going to be relative but most of the people probably listening to this podcast and my audience probably aren't high net worth or ultra high net worth so that is why i generally spoke about that in particular anyway i'll get off that rant but that was one of the mistakes that we've made is buying a newer vehicle a newer car mistake number two buying a fixer upper as our first home so this is 
an interesting topic because I'm not upset. I don't regret buying the amount of house, whether it be square footage or cost. And it actually played into our favor. And I'll just give you a couple examples. So buying the amount of house that we did allowed me to break away and start my own business. If we bought earlier on based on maybe our desires or not really forecasting the future, I may not have been able to do what I did. So it allowed me to break away and start my own business because we had set the bar so low. We bought well beneath our means instead of what we were pre-approved or what everyone else was doing. And then it also allowed Amy, my wife, to stay at home with our kids. So when she transitioned, there was a time period in life where it just made sense for her to step away from her former job. It all of a sudden was an option for her to stay home. If we bought way too much house, if we bought more than we needed, I mean, even at the time, that probably wouldn't have been something that she could have done. So again, those are a couple practical examples of just living well beneath our means and some of the advantages and benefits that that brought for our lives. But buying a fixer upper as our first home has been a costly mistake for us, not just financially, but emotionally. And we've missed on a lot of expectations there. So we underestimated the amount of time and money it would cost to get this home where we'd want it to be. And we still haven't got it to where we want it to be. And frankly, we probably won't ever get it to being ideal. There's just, it's an older home. It was built in 1922. There's just certain things about it that we won't be able to do to it. So, and it's just not worth it. It's not worth the time, the money, the emotional energy to make it to what we want it to be when we can just move. And so, and there was a couple sub mistakes we made within this overall arching mistake. Uh, one was we put down uh, a, a large down payment. So, you know, trying to be fiscally responsible, you know, you hear kind of this 20%, putting 20% down as your down payment to avoid PMI, private mortgage insurance, which is a premium, which is a payment that you have to pay when you don't have 20% of the house's value to put down. It's pretty much the way to say, hey, we're gonna pay this insurance, this premium to this insurance, just in case we default on it, that there's some protection for the bank. So we put 20% down to avoid PMI. We put 20% down to get a more favorable interest rate, but little did we know that we could have used a chunk of that capital, a chunk of that money to renovate the house and fix it up earlier on to get it to where we wanted it to be a lot quicker. So the thing about putting that much capital down up front is it becomes illiquid. You can't really get it out unless you refinance your mortgage and pull that money out, which is a cost in itself. You pretty much pay closing costs again to get that money out. So that was another mistake that we made, kind of went hand in hand with the, the fixer upper piece of the home. Another thing that I've personally made, this is probably less Amy and more on me, but viewing our home as an investment. A home isn't an investment. A home is a home. A home is where memories are made. Homes are highly emotional because what happens within those four walls and a roof. We're talking about a place that is safe, that we can escape the harsh realities of the world and just come together in community, whether that be with your spouse or your kids or 
friends, small group. And this is a place that really nurtures us physically, spiritually, emotionally. It's a, a place where God meets us. So when I say that it's not an investment, I mean that it is so much more than an investment. Yes, it costs money to buy. People can say that is a process of investing, but really stepping back and looking at it in a more comprehensive way, we shouldn't be viewing our homes as investments. There's a sense of security, safety, well-being tied up in this place that we called home. So anyway, I didn't mean to get so emotional on it, but that's kind of what I wanted to say. That's what I meant by homes being a home and not an investment. So one of the reasons I say that viewing your primary residence as an investment is a, a poor decision is because homes don't make very good investments. When you look at all the different investment options out there, those that pay you a dividend, those that pay interest, those that have significant capital appreciation over a long-term period, homes do none of those unless you're building a real estate portfolio, which again, is counter to seeing a primary residence as an investment. Homes come with a lot of expenses. They take a lot of time to maintain. There's a lot of costs associated with that maintenance. You pay taxes on it, which is up to your local governing authority. You have to insure them and the insurance company sets the insurance premiums. And when it comes time to sell your home, there are large closing costs and brokerage fees associated with that transaction as maybe compared to other investment options that are available to you. So when you look at all of these costs, they're largely out of your control for the most part. This is the reason why homes don't make very good investments. Another thing is most people tend to think that their homes appreciate quite a bit over a long-term period, and that just isn't the case. If you pull historical data, it shows that homes appreciate in a very marginal manner each year, if at any. So again, a lot of that is dependent on where you live and development that is happening around your home. So there's obviously a lot of variables, but for most people, their homes just aren't going to appreciate that much in value. So even though I say that home isn't an investment and we shouldn't view it as an investment, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be wise in the home buying decision. So you still want to buy a home that's going to be easily marketable down the road when you when and if you decide to move. And so marketability is still going to be a huge factor when you do buy your home. My mistake was entering into this, looking at it too much as an investment. So the fixer upper piece was, hey, we'll buy this house. We'll, we'll put some love into it, some work into it, and we'll be able to sell it for more than we bought it. So that really kind of blinded me walking into this decision where it's like, no, a home is a lifestyle asset. It would have been probably better. I, it would have been better, I will say, to buy a house that was already ready, that didn't require work, as much work, as much attention, as much money. And that would have freed up time. That would have freed up money. That would have freed up just this space and capacity to just enjoy one another and spend more time in relationships that was a mistake of this fixer-upper that I also had was viewing it too much as an investment so again I don't regret the amount of house we bought because the reality is is most first-time home buyers buy too much house they buy more than what they need they buy more square footage they just buy too much house and there's a lot of costs that come with that so I'm not I don't regret how much home we bought 
I, I know it's the mistake of how we went about it, how we viewed it, and more so me, <laughs> you know, when I, when I really take a step back and look at it. So the mistake was probably buying the fixer upper as a first home, but viewing it too much as an investment. One of the other valuable things I've gotten out of it because it was a fixer upper is I've learned a lot of DIY skills that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So another mistake that a lot of home buyers make is that they outsource everything when it comes to the maintenance of the home. And that can get really costly. And that can actually be a sign that maybe you're not meant to be a homeowner if you're going to outsource absolutely everything. So that's my tirade. But anyway, mistake number two, buying a fixer upper as our first home when not knowing the full extent of what it was going to cost us. Mistake number three, credit cards. Letting credit card rewards dictate our spending. Letting the plastic desensitize us from the overall cost. And I'm sure you may have seen some of the statistics around it as we do. The statistics say we do spend more money on our credit cards than if we were using cash. So there's that statistic that says there's that separation of pain when you shift from cash to plastic. And I think it's, I think it's true. I think it's become the default to, to just hand over plastic, whether it be credit cards or debit cards. We skip the analytical piece and the, the decision making of the actual overall cost of what it's going to cost us and if there's any other alternatives. So that is one of the things that we've, we've noticed kind of drive our behavior is the maybe the rewards, maybe the fact that it's plastic and it's easy rather than stepping back and using cash or letting the cash determine boundaries for our spending. One thing I'll say when it comes to the rewards and the rewards you get from spending on credit cards is oftentimes we look at what we'll get back instead of what we can keep. And I'll say that again. Oftentimes we look at what we can get back in terms of credit card points instead of what we can keep. So what I mean by this is if you spend a dollar and you get five cents back because you have a 5% credit card bonus, well, yeah, you get five cents back on a dollar spent, but what if you didn't spend that dollar in the first place? 100% of a dollar is a dollar. That is something to think about. Are you spending to get the rewards back or are you looking at spending as how much can you keep, what is the, what's the bare minimum that you can spend and get what you need, absolutely need from that transaction? So I've shifted more to the camp of, I think credit cards can be beneficial. Credit cards are really amoral. They're neither good nor bad, right? It's down to how the person uses it. Are you gonna use them responsibly or are you gonna abuse them? Are you gonna be proactive about making sure they have a place within your finances? Or are you gonna let them be the default and dictate how you spend? So they're amoral, right? It depends on how they're being used. I definitely think they can be beneficial. How I've seen them be most beneficial is when they're being used for static expenses, static and fixed expenses, for example. So what I mean are utilities, membership fees, insurance premiums, things of that nature. Really where you want to be careful using credit cards is in those areas of discretion. Those are the areas where it can be really slippery and you can really lose control of spending when it comes to using cash versus credit cards. So food and dining out is always one of those options, retail purchases, things of those nature. That's really where you want to be careful. And maybe those are areas you want to implement more structured barriers for protecting yourself, whether that be cash or, you know, separate bank accounts prefunded with cash. 
Um, there's a lot of different ways to go about that. But anyway, again, I digress. Our third mistake was credit cards and letting rewards dictate spending and becoming desensitized to overall costs because of plastic. So those are our three biggest financial mistakes. And I will say that we'll probably have a few more in life. I tend to think that none of us are impervious to those financial mistakes, but it's really what are we learning? How are we implementing the systems, procedures, processes to prevent that from happening again? Um, one of the big things you can do to prevent financial mistakes in your life is just one, don't make decisions hasty. Don't be quick to make those decisions. Decisions that need to be made in a timely and quick manner typically don't ever end up well. Two, make sure you have counsel. Make sure you have wise counsel in your corner that can give you advice, that can have a different perspective. They probably don't have the same bias, so they can give you a more well-rounded perspective. So have wise counsel in your corner. Making mistakes is okay. Making the same mistakes over and over is not okay. So I want to err on the side of saying that we're all going to make mistakes. I know that I've made mistakes and will continue to make mistakes. That is not the problem that I'm addressing here. It is addressing the fact that it's okay to make mistakes, but let's not make those mistakes repeatedly because that is what's dangerous and that's what's going to do some damage over a long period of time. The other thing in regards to that same vein is we want to minimize the frequency of the larger mistakes that we make. So there's a very big difference in having a late fee assessed to your credit card versus owing the IRS thousands of dollars because you had a crappy accountant. So those are two, two very contrast mistakes. If we're going to make mistakes, we want to make them on the, on the low end of the spectrum of what it's going to cost us. So we want to minimize those larger mistakes and the frequency of those larger mistakes in our life. Anyway, so those are three mistakes. Thank you for listening. Let me know if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, and don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already subscribed. Uh, go ahead and share this with anyone you think could get some value from this podcast. That'd be greatly appreciated. And then head over to the website and the connect page if you have any mailback questions. I'd love to answer for you guys. So until next time, the best is yet to come.